everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Sophie, and today we're sitting down with Stephanie Johnson. Johnson, who has a PhD, is an author, professor, and keynote speaker who studies the intersection of leadership and diversity. As an associate professor at the University of Colorado Boulder's LEAD School of Business, Johnson teaches undergraduate and graduate students focusing on leadership and inclusion. Her new book, Inclusify, Harnessing the Power of Uniqueness and Belonging to Build Innovative Teams, shares the surprising ways leaders can undermine inclusion and provides actionable ways that leaders can pivot to build more inclusive teams. She has extensive consulting experience and has created and delivered leadership development training with an emphasis on evidence-based practice. Her safety leadership course was adopted by the OSHA 30 and taken by 70,000 students in its first two years. Johnson is an active researcher and has published 60 journal articles and book chapters in outlets of the Journal of Applied Psychology and the Academy of Management Journal and is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Johnson. Oh, thanks for having me. So our first question has to do a little bit with what you mentioned in your ad talk about identifying yourself as a Mexican-American. And we wanted to ask you, what role does your identity play in advocating for awareness about this effort of diversity and inclusion to others? It is a great question. So um, I think there are certainly people who study diversity and inclusion or who do this work who identify as majority group members, right? But I guess to me, um, growing up in Los Angeles is being Mexican-American, like I, I feel like my view informs some of the work that I do. Um, I, you know, this is audio, but I'll say like most people probably would guess that I am white just based on my outward appearance, um, which is I'm half white and um, I have a lot of hair color going on. So I think like that's fair, but um, I think I grew up I grew up in Alhambra. You might know where that is. If you're at, in Claremont, you pass through it on the 10 and there's like a big slowdown in traffic. And um, I think I, I learned a lot about systemic racism and inequality around income uh, just because I grew up not having a lot of money and had to have a job. Like I, I was just thinking about back, you know, because I spoke at the AF and 20 more than 20 years ago, 25 years ago, back in the 90s, applying to colleges and taking the AP exams and SATs and stuff like that, and literally having to get a job to pay for my exams and my college applications and realizing, you know, that's not, that's not really most people's experience. And so, you know, when I see students uh, of my own now, you know, as a college professor, like I can see that inequity so clear that, you know, there's students who are, who have jobs to pay for school and there's students that who don't work and have tutors and there's students who, you know, over the summer, uh, maybe they take a great internship, it's unpaid, but it's really prestigious and other students who just can't really do that while paying their bills. And so I think it's hard to really see those inequities and unless you've actually experienced it, like someone can explain it to you, but until the day that you're like, I have to pay, you know, $72 for a college application, I'm literally going to have to work. And I think minimum wage was like 525 or something. So 
I think you can't really understand it. And I think that's easy just to say, um, you know, you can work more, you can work more. And it's like, there's only so many hours in the day, you know, that um, those small inequities, I think, impact success. And they're often not counted into our definition of what's merit, right? Instead, it's just like, what's the bottom line? Well, where's your GPA? No one says, and how many jobs did you have to hold to get to pay for that school? That is, I think it brings to light a lot of the background stuff that we don't really talk about. And it's like, I feel like there is a very implicit line between like what we perceive a certain experience as versus what it actually is. And going off of that, I'm curious as, I'm curious if there's like a pivot or like an inflection point in your life that really like set you on the path that you are on now. Oh yeah. I mean, I had really great teachers and if I had to say, you know, there's anything that really changed my life. I mean, it was definitely going to CMC, like going to this like really top college, like neither of my parents went to college. And so the idea of even going to college was sort of surprising. And, you know, my parents didn't really want me to move away from home because, you know, in a more traditional Mexican family, like you just don't move out at 18 and go live some, you know, 20 minutes away from home. Um, but I mean, I can't imagine if I hadn't done that, like if I had either, you know, my parents really encouraged me to go to junior college because it was a lot cheaper. And um, I'll say like, maybe at least my dad wasn't entirely confident in my ability to be successful in college. And so he's like, that's a lot of money for you to waste because I'm the one who paid for it <laughs> um, to go to college if, you know, if it's not going to work out. But that, I mean, without that education, like there's just no way, I think, to create equity unless you have access to education. That's just the, to me, I mean, I know people can be successful without formal education and you know, with things like coding and stuff, like you can learn a trade or you can become a plumber and like all those things. There's like, that was a great uh, ways to have the same kind of differentiation. But like, I think you need to do something to get those credentials because if you don't come from that kind of privileged background, like you also don't know anyone. And so like, I didn't know anyone who went to college or had, you know, none of my parents' friends ran companies or, worked in the government or like, there's no one to give me uh, those like opportunities that, you know, maybe some folks even without like, you know, those, you know, Stanford dropouts and stuff who become millionaires. It's like, they probably had access to something that helped them. But for me, it was fully just having that access to education. And there were a couple of like really amazing faculty at CMC um, who, one was a professor who's not there anymore. Her name's Susan Murphy. And she was my assigned freshman advisor. Um, and she just was really supportive of me. And the other professor who's still there is Ron Vigio, um, who got me into doing research. Um, my freshman year, I tried to get into the industrial organizational psych class because this is what I wanted to study was industrial organizational psychology. And I told him, you know, freshman year, I want to get a PhD and blah, 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 which is probably absurd. Um, for any freshman student to say, but it, you know, it worked out. So um, I was like, you have to let me into your class. And I heard about all these other students who are like, you just have to let me into the class. And my parents pay a lot of money for me to go here and let me into the class. 
And so I'm like, you have to let me into the class because what I want to do. And he's like, no, but if you really want to be an industrial organizational psychologist, you can do um, research at the Kravis Institute. And then you'll see if you really like it and you'll get in the class when you deserve to get in the class, right? Like when there's an opening and your registration number comes up. Um, and so I did, and like that totally solidified for me the my love of research and IO psych, which is what I did my PhD in. Um, but were it not for, you know, those people who just like I don't, I don't think they can ever really know what a big impact they had. And even like that's the reason I wanted to be a faculty member too, just to potentially have that impact on like just like maybe one student in my life, you know, and the impact of having that education. Um, was that inflection point for me. That's a very inspirational story. And I'm glad everything worked out for you. <laughs> yeah, I know, me too. <laughs> I, I still might change my mind. Like it's, you know, it's been uh, 25 years, but I'm still thinking, you know, maybe there's some like side hustle or second career for me out there. I don't know. I wanted to ask you about the title of your latest book. How did you come up with the term inclusify and what does that really mean? Yeah, you know, I, it really comes from the idea of first, you know, I studied diversity and leadership. And I, I had this idea that if we called increasing diversity, diversifying, people would like it better because adding increasing diversity, you know, I think this is like a while ago. And I don't know that everyone was really for the idea of diversity. Like they're like, I just want to hire the best person for the job. Um, but diversifying, like it, as you know, CMC students, you know about finance, like it's a term in investing that if you want to have a strong investment portfolio, you diversify it. And that way, if you know shocks in the system occur or like big economic changes, your the fact that you have your money allocated in different places actually strengthens your investment portfolio. And I think it's the same thing with diversity. It's like if you have a diversified organization, then, you know, when Uber enters the market and you're a taxi cab company, you have an understanding of different populations or, uh, you know, with COVID, like if you have a diversity of people in your organization, you're going to be better able to weather these shocks. And so I'd always try to use that term, but then diversity, I think, you know, is great, but diversity without inclusion doesn't really get the job done. So as I started studying more inclusion, I just kind of brought that term with me and tried to apply it to create, inclusifying is kind of like diversifying, but um, in relation to inclusion. And so I'm trying to imply there, you ask like what it actually is, that it's like an action. You have to do something to create inclusion. It's not just like, well, you guys let me on your show. You, you included me, thanks. Uh, but it doesn't actually work unless you, you know, prepare great questions and oh, like try to give me an opportunity to share my views, which I would say is inclusifying. It's like you're actually, I call it like living and leading in a way that celebrates diverse perspectives and um, allows everyone to be their unique and authentic self while still belonging. Yeah, um, going off of that, I'm really curious as to how you as a professor deal with diversity and inclusion in the academic context, especially since we are virtual. I think, you know, we hear a lot about diversity and inclusion in the corporate world. And, you know, it's very like career focused at CMC, but I'm really curious as to how you as a professor not 
at CMC are dealing with the trials and tribulations of the ongoing situation? I, you know, it's such a challenge. Like we had um, my college, which is the, so the lead school business is my college at the University of Colorado. Um, we had a big session on inclusive pedagogy. Like how can you create more inclusion in the classroom? And, you know, we, I facilitated this, but I brought in experts from across campus because it is something that's very different. Like from, I usually work with companies and corporations and and I think that the same underlying principles of like uniqueness and belonging apply, but um, there's other things like, well, in education, like access to um, high-speed internet to be able to do your work or like some profs require you to have your cameras on. Well, like, you know, I think that doesn't account for the possibility that you may have like stuff going on in the background, like not everyone's has access to like a, you know, pretty little background, like my pink background here. Um, and, you know, maybe you don't wanna show that part of your life to people. And so I think allowing people the freedom to kind of like um, have their camera on or off is important. I think like recognizing that you may, like requiring everyone to log on at the same time, I don't think it's terribly inclusive um like I'm teaching a class that starts I think it starts in a week or something but and I do have like synchronous sessions like we're all going to be there at the same time and if you're not there like um you you can't fully participate but I'm not going to penalize students who can't be there because what if your internet goes down or you know I have two little kids and like on a weekly basis there's some kind of school crisis that prevents me from doing my job because you know, their school's not open or Google Classroom was down, you know, when they were remote and stuff. And so like, I don't think it's inclusive to expect um, everyone to just be free for class right now. Like there's not a, as many non-traditional students, like most students at CMC are like 18 to 22, right? But um, if, if that's not really typical of the vast population of college students, like people have different experiences so I think that, and then like the other big thing that stands out to me is in, when you do have class, like, are you really creating an environment where people can actually contribute to the discussion? Like, are you um, allowing each person a chance to talk? Are people getting spoken over? Are you listening to people's ideas in the same way and recognizing their contributions in the same way? Or are you doing the normal thing of like people who fit your, mo your like, um, model image of what a student is like, you kind of give more credit to, or you listen to more. Um, I definitely see that in, you know, in my own classes, like the really assertive, you know, very often, um, this is kind of sexist, but like it's more often male students than female students. Like they speak up and want to be heard. And it doesn't really matter if people talk over them. They just keep talking, you know, like they, it's a, I, that's a gift, like good for them. But <laughs> I think it's also within the professor's purview to try to create an environment where people can contribute equally. So they're not um, giving some people more airtime than others. And I'd actually encourage them to, uh, I tell this to my colleagues, like because Zoom meetings are recorded naturally and like it tells people they're recorded. So you, you know, you're not like illegally recording people. When you're not teaching, 
or even if you're a student, when you're not in class, go back and watch those and just like pay attention to the dynamics a little bit and see who does speak, whose ideas are echoed or are they attributed to someone else or someone talks over them and just like kind of get a sense, like you don't see it until you see it. And it's hard to see it when you're in the middle of it. But then sometimes when you watch it, it's like, it feels like it's gotta be a joke. Like this did not actually really happen, but it does like all the time. And it's so stereotypical. There's, if you use a Mac, there's actually an app that will record the amount of time that different people talk. And so you can test like for differences. Anyway, there's so much and it's, and it's super difficult. Like even, um, in if we like in zoom meetings there's an app or like an add-on that you can have it transcribe what you're saying for students who either are um, hard of hearing or even like i don't know if people always think about this but like if you have to watch something with the sound off like if i want to listen to this lecture and i have a lot of other stuff going on or i have to go to work or i have my kids running around you can do a simple click of a button and have it transcribed so that people are able to, um, to like have the volume off. And at the same time, like if you're using visuals, you know, you can make sure that those are um, added to the description. Like you can talk about them. You should be explaining what's on the screen for people um, who maybe can't hear what you're saying or can't see what you're posting, right? Like just think of that in a, an inclusive way so that everyone can actually get access to the material in the same way so that it like if you're not giving equal access to education how can you expect equal performance yeah you know professor you mentioned earlier about how important your formal education experience was to you but you know from the question from your answer earlier just now it seemed that also the most important takeaways you took from CMC and that you are implementing as well, or like being more cognizant of in your own classes are more of the um, soft skills aspect of interactions in a classroom. Things like being exposed to a wide, wider range of life experiences and the connections you make or being more cognizant of the accessibility and resources that help students perform better rather than the academic lectures itself or whatnot. And I was wondering, how do you think we should be expanding on this aspects, these aspects of education rather than, you know, just creating a course about uh, diversity and inclusion and more focusing on all these um, related accessory tools that form the supportive ecosystem? Well, and it's such a great question. You know, I think I'll say for one thing, like, so after, you know, I left CMC and I did my PhD at Rice and then I worked at University of Wisconsin, Madison, and now at University of Colorado. And I have to say of all the schools I've ever been at, I think CMC actually does the best job of this. Like there's so many opportunities for students to get those soft skills. Like if it's speaking in front of a class and you know working for one of the centers and there's just like, when I was a student, there was less of a focus on diversity and inclusion for sure. I don't think inclusion existed, but um, but there are tons of opportunities like um, the you know internship programs and even like being an AF fellow and like the leadership opportunities are so expansive. And I you know I think KLI at least at the time when I was there provided a lot of opportunities for students to learn in those ways. And um, I'm sure they still 
they still do. Because this is one of the reasons CMC students are so successful because they leave with all these soft skills, right? I think um, the network, the, the education or like having that thing on your resume is important for getting you in the door. You know, like with someone who had no, uh, like, I don't know, people to give me an opportunity. Like I really had to rely on the resume. Like even, even now, like even as, as a professor who's like, I don't know if people often associate me as a person of color, but as a female business professor, it's like pretty rare. Like no one's gonna hire me without the credentials. Like that's like, you have to have the credentials especially as an underrepresented group or underrepresented person um, versus like, I think sometimes majority group members are kind of like, well, they have great potential or like, you know, they have these other skills, but I think it's, it's that, but then it's those other things that you point out so eloquently that are what make you successful. Once you get in the door, it's like, how can you, the emotional intelligence, like self-care, like, I don't think we talk about that enough, but um, like mental health. I'll say this is, this was something that we definitely did not focus on when I was a student at, at any point, like no students took care of themselves. I think you were like, you push yourself as hard as you possibly can. So you can get as many little awards and accolades as you can while you're there. And so then hopefully in the rest of your life, you, you're more successful. I don't know. But I think today with I'll say like at CU, like we focus a lot more on students' mental health. It's one of our chancellor's top initiatives uh, because this is a journey, you know, it's like, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not just like, just make it through four years of college because then you just have to make it through the next, whatever grad school or the first few years of your job or until you make a partner, until your kids grow, grow up. It's like, it goes on forever. And I think that's why we see such high levels of, you know, burnout and depression and anxiety and it, you know, everyone is students and adults. Um, so I think those are the things that actually differentiate you for like, once you're in the door, who really it leads a successful, and I'm going to include in that successful, like a happy and healthy and positive life, not just successful as um, your, you know, income and job title, but really like who becomes a person uh, who, who feels like successful and and has a positive impact and who doesn't I think that's the, the stuff you're talking about going off of that um I mean you've devoted your academic and you know career focus to diversity and inclusion and I'm really curious like how do you present these ideas in a way that's like novel and nuanced and because I think especially to those who have made it to the higher education realm, it seems like something that we talk about a lot and something that hopefully a lot of people take to heart. Um, but how do you present it in a way that like really makes people want to buy in and, you know, whether that be as a professor, as an individual, or as somebody working with these high stakes corporations? Yeah, I don't know. You'll have to tell me if you buy into this, I guess, to this argument. But I guess I really think of it as like, so there's a business case, sure. You know, this will help your company. Um, it'll make you be able to be more innovative and weather storms and all that. But I guess I, I think that's the the mind, right? You really have to like. Sorry, that was my email. If you'd like, you can edit out that sound. Um, I really think of it as 
uh, the other half is the the heart, right? Like the experience. And I think everyone's experienced that feeling of a lack of inclusion. Like even now, I'll say I work with companies and people who are like, just like not, it's, they just don't get the diversity thing. It's like, I think we should just hire the best person. It's like, well, you're not hiring the best person. You're hiring people who fit the mold, right? And no, I think we should just hire the best person. I don't have time to figure out your distance traveled or like all the things you overcame. Like, I just want the person with the best resume, fine. I mean, not really fine, but like fine. But on the inclusion side, everyone has that experience in their life of when they didn't feel included. Like when they didn't feel like they could be themselves, when they didn't feel like they were accepted, when they had to hide parts of their identity. Um, and like everyone feels the same pain. Like there's actually a, a fMRI study, like this neurological study that showed that that feeling triggers the same area of your brain that lights up when you're feeling physical pain. Like it is painful. And I think if you can just remind people of that feeling, then no one wants to be the cause of that feeling in someone else. Or so far, I haven't met anyone who admits it. Like maybe narcissists or something want to, but I think most people want to believe that they wouldn't exclude someone on purpose. They want to hear, you know, they want everyone to feel like they belong and feel accepted. And you want people committed to your organization, committed to you as a leader. Um, and I, I guess that works. And then if you don't like hearing even people you care about tell these stories, uh, like if you have, a, you know, a colleague who has experienced exclusion and, you're, and you didn't know that and you hear that for the first time, like I think that can be a really meaningful experience for people because you wouldn't want that. Even if you haven't experienced yourself, which everyone has, you wouldn't want that for people you care about either. I think when you see that, I don't know so far, I mean, I guess I, maybe it's naive, but I have the belief that people are really good when well-intentioned and they wouldn't do so many of the things that we do that cause harm to others, we wouldn't do it if we knew better, you know, if we knew our actions and could had control over the situation. It's just like, we're not always thinking about it because there's so many other things going on. And so I think just communicating that to people, they can see, they can put themselves, it's like, it's basically perspective taking or empathy in that person's shoes. And I think they can be more aware of how their behavior impacts other people. So Professor, for our last question, we wanted to ask you a little bit about the workshop training programs that you'll, you host or conduct. Um, so we know that aside from the seminars and like talks that you normally give, that you also lead workshop trainings for corporations or organizations and whatnot. And just briefly, could you maybe share what is it you actually teach in these programs and just a brief overview of the process you go through in creating the programs? Oh yeah, you know, usually, so if I'm gonna create a workshop, I would meet with people in the company to figure out what is it that, what are the skills that people are, are needing? You know, what are like the biggest pressing problems that they're facing? You know, is, is it, you know, uh, a lack of inclusion or microaggressions or, you know, whatever it might be and then what those look like at the company, they're not all the same, right? And who's being experiencing aggression? Like it might, in certain contexts, 
uh, it might be Asian Americans and other situations that's primarily a problem or a concern around women, other um, organizations, it might be black women specifically who are experiencing that or LGBTQ, or maybe it's an issue of ability or disability. And so then knowing that, like then um, I try to work with the company to design a training that will specifically address it. And, you know, the what as far as content is usually like really skills-based because I don't know if just like awareness is enough. Like it's really like practicing and, um, you know, maybe it is even watching one of your own meetings. It's like really hard to do, but when you watch it and you see how people get excluded or spoken over, that has that like visceral experience and response that you're like, okay, I want to, I want to do better next time. Um, so really, you know, focusing on figuring out what the problem is and then what are the skills to overcome it? And then like, how are we going to measure change is kind of the last part of it. Cause if you're not measuring change, then people aren't really accountable to change. And I think that's, you know, we know for human behavior, accountability really matters. Um, so maybe that's like an important last step. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Unfortunately, that is all of the time that we have. So um, thank you so much, Dr. Johnson, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.